Thank you for this morning. Thank you for the Lord's Day. Uh, Thank you not just for um, the institution of the Lord's Day. Thank you for this Lord's Day today. Thank you for those that are here in the room together. Thank you that we can um, think about these things, discuss these things, that we can roll them around in our head, that we can hold your word up to the light and turn it and look at it from all its different angles and try to uh, gain new perspective so that we might have uh, greater depth of understanding so that it might result in um, richer and an increase in spiritual fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we are on class number three of the realm of the dead, and we've seen that, uh, in fact, last week we looked specifically at Sheol and Hades, so remember we had in the first week, the the three-tiered cosmology, just that general overall sense of heaven, earth, and under the earth. Then we focused in a little bit more just on the under the earth, on um, Sheol and Hades, and we kind of talked about uh, translation versus transliteration and, and trying to dial in the word Sheol and the word Hades specifically. And at the end of that, my little teaser um, was the question, well, if Sheol or Hades is a little more generally the place of the dead, or sometimes referred to as the grave, or maybe even the pit, and that's where, at least in Old Testament times, that everyone went, righteous or unrighteous, how is it possible for the wicked and the righteous to be in the same place. And so we are going to answer that question today. And we're going to continue with the analogy. Hopefully you can see this. I know that it's a little difficult uh, depending on where you're sitting. I put a diagram up here. And what we're going to do is we're going to look then at what are divisions of Sheol or compartments of Sheol. And so I've listed um, three And I have a question mark down here. And my goal originally was to hit all three of these, and I don't believe we're going to be able to do that. So I think what we're going to focus on today as we go through this are the first two. So what I have listed up here, I guess for the sake of the recording, is I have upper Sheol, I have lower Sheol, and I have lowest Sheol listed. And um, of course, those terms are not in Scripture. But what is in scripture is within upper Sheol, I have listed paradise or Abraham's bosom. In lower Sheol, I have the term Sheol or Hades and also place of anguish. And then in lowest Sheol, which we will not be going uh, into today, we have the abyss, Tartarus, bottomless pit. All of these terms you do find in scripture, and we're going to look at the different verses so that we can see how those things apply. And then I have this little question mark down here, because there is yet a fourth, if we're going to, uh, you know, use the analogy and com- so that I can communicate effectively, there is a fourth location that is not a part of Sheol. So, And that will also probably be next week. So my plan next week is to probably hit this lowest Sheol, and then cover that question mark. We'll reveal the question mark down there. One of the things, as I was preparing for this today, I thought, I've made a couple of assumptions 
in, in talking about all this, and I thought I better back up just a little bit and make sure that I cover my bases on those matters so that, we, you know, because for me, what I'm trying to do is to organize this in a way that you yourself can see in Scripture what it's saying, and you can come to your own conclusions based on what, what, how Scripture reads. But uh, a, a particular, there have been a, a couple of assumptions that I believe that we can safely draw inferences from with the verses we've already let, read, but I didn't feel comfortable with that. I thought, let me make sure I clarify these things. So, uh, a couple of those assumptions are, the first one is that at death, whether in the Old Testament era or the New Testament era, our bodies are separated from our souls. Now, we've read a number of passages that I think kind of illustrate that, but I haven't said that explicitly, I don't believe. So I want to make sure I say that explicitly, that our bodies at death, physical death, our bodies are separated from our souls, and that the dead physical body decays or decomposes, or to use biblical language, biblical language sees corruption, but the soul lives on. Now, the term that is used, that's not used in uh, the Bible, but that is a phrase that uh, we use to help describe that particular time when the soul is separated from the body is what's referred to as an, the intermediate state. So when you're reading books that um, use these theological terms or trying to describe these things, they will say the intermediate state. Now, what that does not mean is that there is a purgatory. However, the idea of communicating that there is an intermediate state is to say that it is temporary. If you are in the intermediate state, that means you're not at the beginning, you're not at the end. And that's what's taking place. And so one of the things I hope to show you is that anything that takes place in any of these compartments within any of these divisions within Sheol is temporary, which is why it's referred to as an intermediate state. Now, I don't want you to just take my word for it on these uh, couple of things. Let's look at a, um, some verses, not the least of which. So we're going to hit uh, whoever has Genesis 2. I put 17, but you're going to read 16 and 17. But, you know, at, not, not the least of which is uh, Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So to think that there's going to be, uh, to think that there, that, that right there, that one verse pretty much eliminates any concept of purgatory because it's appointed to man to die once, and after that is the judgment. There's no um, getting extra credits from other people or... Um, gaining a better status once you've died. But uh, in any case, let's look at um, a couple of verses that demonstrate that uh, this uh, penalty for sin at the death of the body. So Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Go ahead, Steve. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, so here we have God communicating uh, to Adam and Eve and saying that there is death. Oh, you also have 319, right? Yeah, th those go hand in hand. So I figured just 
It's one page away. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Okay, so again, this is just reiterating the point that um, when um, that there was a threat of the curse, that if they violate this covenant, that their death would come and that it would result in uh, returning to the ground made of dust. All right, Genesis 2, 7. So this uh, speaks to the concept that there is a, a soul that is separate from the body. So if you haven't thought about this in the context of Genesis 2, 7, this is, uh, this is good. Go ahead, Joe. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Okay, so Joe, what did he make first? What did God make first? He <clears throat> made the flesh. Right, he made the body. He made Adam's body, but it wasn't alive. Right. He breathed in his life. So we have this separation, or that there is a distinction of some kind. We don't know all the nuances, but there is a distinction between a body that God created and that. Good. Uh, and then James... Uh, 2.26. Who's got James 2.26? Samuel. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Okay, so again, the main point is not about the, the distinction, but yet we see right there that a distinction is being made in the context of, uh, of, of that verse there. And then um, our last one for this particular topic is Matthew 10, and I, had, I think I might have put on there 23, but it's 20, verses 26 to 28. Who has the Matthew 10? Anyone? Boy, not only did I use the wrong one, I... You. Go ahead, Steve. Matthew 10. Oh, Kaylin has it? Okay, Matthew ten twenty six to 28. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Okay, so we see a very clear distinction there. If you're not the one that can kill the body, if you're the one that can kill the soul um, and cast it in hell, and yes, we will get to that verse, not today. So we can see clearly that there is a distinction between body and soul. So I wanted to make sure that that is there. I uh, wanted to make sure that we uh, put, got on the record as well that yes, we talk about these things. Um, when I say these things, I'm pointing at the board regarding Sheol and that we think of them as an intermediate state, which is to say that it's temporary, but which is not to say that there is some kind of purgatory or that there will be a change in a spiritual status of anyone after they have physically died. Um, the other thing that I wanted to make sure that I was clear on and that we're not going to read the verses right this minute because we're uh, going to see it more clearly here as we progress through, but that at death, whether in the Old Testament era or in the New Testament era, the soul has a consciousness. So not only is the soul separated from the body, but it has a consciousness and that it is not in a sleep state. 
So the Jehovah's Witness claim that uh, Sheol or Hades is, is a state of like non-existence or a state of oblivion, and that is not at all what Scripture reveals. That not only is at death, at physical death, is your body um, separated from your soul, but that your soul has consciousness, that there is some form of an awareness. Again, we don't know all the nuances of that, but I believe it, that's going to bear itself out as we uh, go on. Now, one more fine print here, caveat, is that the stuff that we're going to look at here in just a few minutes has the potential to go flying off into some other direction on all kinds of very important theological issues that need to be investigated taught on, preached on. That's not what we're doing. We're trying to keep it contained to, to, these, to this topic here, to see how the Bible, to see if what I'm claiming with my little diagram here is accurate and that these exist and that they exist in this fashion or using this analogy. Is this really how things are biblically? So as we read the verses, think that through. And if we have time for questions at the end, um, maybe don't drop a bomb on, okay, well then, if you know, that's the case, and go off. I, we're, we're trying to keep it, keep it kind of close to this topic here. Okay. Yes. Okay. You're going to remember the name of this uh, grammatical uh, concept, but Scripture does refer to death as sleep, but it's using... What the heck is it called? I'm, dry, dry, I'm going uh, uh, Metaphor? We, simile? Me, not, not a metaphor. It's where you, uh, you downplay it by using a lesser... Uh, come on, Nicholas. Rob Roy? Euphemism. Oh, there you go. Euphemism. Thank okay. you very much. So you'll yes. see sleep, but it doesn't mean sleep. That's a great point. That's okay. a great point. Um, but I think even in those cases, there is a um, reference to the body. So, you know, is, is she, it, they're all weeping. She's dead. No, she's only asleep. They laugh at Jesus. Um, but he's not saying that her soul is asleep. There, there's a, there's a different frame of reference, but you're right. Sleep is, the word sleep is associated in there with death. And, uh, so thank you. Thank you for that clarification. Um, Yes, which would also connect to this whole idea of intermediate, of temporary uh, sleep, being communicating that temporary sense, because we don't sleep um, into perpetuity. It is always temporary. Um, let me see what I have here. All right, we're going to look at a couple references uh, that reaffirm the claims. I already did that. Uh, about the righteous after death in the Old Testament. Oh, yeah. So, um, I didn't. sometimes you study these things and you realize that there were issues that people had or that uh, were discussed um, in the past that we're just not really aware of now. And um, so one of them I didn't really realize, but I, again, I feel like I should kind of go on the record just because it has been an issue at some point, is that there have been people that have claimed that in the Old Testament that, that the Jews didn't even really have a concept of the afterlife or not, um, not a... F- not a real fully developed one, or that almost like it wasn't even a factor to them, that basically they were focused on the fact that they were promised people and land, which is all true, but that that was it. Like, we just are trying to get the land that we were promised, end of story. And, of course, there's all kinds of typological things that that points towards, but the question is then, 
did they really care about, did they write extensively in the Old Testament about what happened after someone physically died? And I would agree that it is probably, or that it is less developed than what we see in the New Testament, but that it is absolutely present, that there is discussion about it in the Old Testament. So we're going to look a few of those verses. In fact, what we're going to do is in Ezekiel 36, there is, you can read the entirety of the the chapter and it talks about, or it describes, Ezekiel's describing a a desolate land that eventually it it turns to cities rebuilt um, and that once he puts his spirit in you, the waste places are rebuilt And then it talks about a desolate land that is tilled and fruitful, like Eden replanted and as cities filled with people. And so this is this is language that's talking about death that then comes to life. So this dead ground and that then becomes fruitful. And in fact, the very next chapter in Ezekiel 37, you have the account of the valley of dry bones. So that makes it abundantly clear. So if you have Ezekiel 37, there we go. It's Paul course it is, as far as we can get from you, Mark. Um, so Paul's going to read Ezekiel 37, 11 to 14, and then our Daniel 12 is going to be next. He, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Thank you, Paul. And then uh, Daniel 12, verses 1 and 2. And so we see very clearly that Ezekiel is talking um, uh, about this idea of, of death, of dry bones. God blows his spirit into it and gives it life and bringing it back to life. Go ahead, Daniel 12, verses 1 and 2. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. All right, so there we have our sleep terminology, so part of that intermediate state, uh, but that there will be an awakening, some to uh, everlasting life and some to shame. Okay, Isaiah 57, verses 1 and 2. And so now we start to see uh, uh, an interesting concept that is entered in and I think is really going to help us see what... Uh, the righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away, while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who, who walk in their unrighteousness. 
Okay, Gary, hold on, quick question. According to the verses that you just read, for the righteous, is it, do, do things get better or worse for him after he dies? It's better. He it gets enters better. into peace. He gets peace. Okay, so now we have the Jews talking about the fact that there is peace to be gained for the righteous after death. All right, Psalm 116, verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Yeah, all right. You hear that at every funeral where it's a believer, right? God himself is saying precious is the death of his saints. Very good. And then Proverbs 14.32 also expresses that. Jane, next is going to be Psalm 49. The wicked is overthrown through his evil doing, but the righteous finds refuge in his death. Okay, there's refuge to be found for a righteous person in death. All right, Psalm 49, verses 13 to 15, we have a contrast laid out for us. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol, with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Okay, so what we're seeing is this language that's contrasting the death of the unrighteous with the death of the righteous, yet in this temporary state. So, um, that was Psalm 73, right, Lita? We just did that? Oh, you did 49. Okay, we still need Psalm 73, verses 23 to 26. Jamie. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Okay, so the righteous in their death are going to be received into glory. So there's no question, I think we can put to rest uh, the, cons- the idea or the assertion that the Jews didn't have some attitude or something to say, something inspired by the Holy Spirit to say about what happens with the righteous after death. So if that is the case, then what happens? Uh, Mark, come over here. We're going to now spend the rest of our time looking at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So, PJ, if you would read that parable for us in its entirety, this is Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me 
and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm. Excuse me, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into the place, this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear. Uh, let, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Okay. Now, I think we can all agree that the primary, whatever the, the point is of that parable, at least the, the main point of the parable, it is not what we are discussing as far as the, you know, how Sheol breaks down. Now, although we acknowledge that that is not the main point, uh, we perhaps can ask the question, so does that mean then that God is using a parable? Did he just dream this scene up? Did he just make up the entirety of this setting to illustrate the point of the parable? And I would say, well, if you think about it, this is one of the longer parables that he tells. And if you compare that against every other parable, um, you know that every one of those parables has a real thing that people can identify with. So in other words, the parable of the mustard seed, or the new cloth on an old garment, or hidden treasure, or lost sheep or the lost coin, or the two sons, or the laborers in the vineyard, and the list goes on. Would you say about any one of those other parables, well, Jesus just kind of created the pieces of that parable. They don't exist, but he made those just to make a point. You wouldn't. You say, well, no, of course, we can all identify with two sons and laborers that work in a vineyard, and a sheep that's lost, and uh, mustard seed is a real thing, and all of those. So to say that this, is one, that, that, that this is completely, in a sense, fabricated for the purpose of making a point in a parable would mean that this is like some one-off that Jesus dreamed this up to make this one point. And that just doesn't, that doesn't seem to be consistent with the use of parables. Plus, kind of the idea of parables is to give things that people can identify with. So if we acknowledge that and we say, well, okay, if there is reality to this scene that Jesus has, has given us the, of this description, I believe that we can make four observations about it. So the first observation um, is actually that this is potentially then a real setting, okay? That this is not some fantastical Scene that Jesus dreamed up for the purpose of uh, making his point. So that when we ask the question, or, or uh, when we think about 
all of those other parables, I don't believe that anybody asked the question at the end of that parable, well, could that really be? You say, well, of course, it could be. And so I think we can associate that with this parable as well. The second observation that we see is that the disembodied souls that are taking place within the parable are conscious. Okay? So I had just made that claim earlier that that at death, the soul itself is conscious, regardless of, you know, going back to my diagram, regardless of if that soul is in upper Sheol, righteous, or lower Sheol, unrighteous, after they've died, that there is a consciousness that's taking place. In fact, um, here's something just, I mean, if this doesn't grip your soul and, and, and shake you to your core, uh, you know, each person that dies in wickedness will experience punishment in exact proportion to the sin they committed while they were alive. You know, we use that phrase usually when we're really wanting to cast condemnation on a particular person. We say, oh boy, there's a special place in hell for that guy. Well, there's a special place of punishment for every one of uh, the unrighteous. And one place that we see that being referenced is in Acts one twenty-five, when it says that Judas went to his own place. That is basically to say that there is commensurate with the decisions that he made, there is a torment, there is an anguish that is suitable for him. And so we see here that in this setting, that if there is some reality, that there is some reality to the setting, we see that there is a consciousness associated with it, that the rich man is, in fact, in torment, that Lazarus himself is not in torment, And then I think part of this consciousness, so this is kind of a subset here that's interesting, is we see that there is some communication that's taken place, right? So this goes towards this whole idea of consciousness, is that um, Lazarus is communicating and saying, hey, can you please, and he makes a request that, of course, is an utterly selfish request, However, there is, within this parable, um, communication that's taking place. And additionally, additionally, besides communication, notice, sorry, my handwriting standing like this. Notice something else. There is recognition. Now, that's something to think about. If these are disembodied souls, yet there's still some form of recognition. Now, um, what some of the, um, you know, the really old scholars and stuff is they would refer to the souls as shades or shadows. And so if we ask the question, um, uh, we were having a discussion the other night and the question came up, well, will, will we recognize each other before Christ returns and we regain our, our bodies um, because we know that it's clear that we will have bodies that in some sense are similar to the bodies that we have now, will we recognize each other? And I would say that based on this parable, there is a conscious soul that, it, it, that there is communication taking place and that there is a sense in which there is recognition. 
The rich man is there. He sees that it's Lazarus. And then vice versa. But of course, there is this great chasm that is between them. All right, observation number three is that they are located in some way in the same area. So, maintaining our analogy of geography, we have in this parable that they can see each other and that they are in some way in the same area, but clearly they are having two very different experiences. And there is a great chasm between them, an uncrossable chasm that exists. And then the final observation here is that whatever state the person entered Sheol and their respective, you know, upper Sheol, lower Sheol is unchangeable. There's no, no one gets to upgrade. No one's going to be downgraded, you know, can't apply any points. There's no, there's no change. And we see all of these elements within the parable, things that we can observe um, about the parable itself. Now, this is where I wanted to um, kind of finish was on the word paradise. I think this is, uh, this is where things can get a little bit um, confusing sometimes is because we see that word paradise and we go, okay, we're talking about all these terms. We're talking about um, Sheol and Hades and like, okay, what exactly is that? And, and things like that. And I just described Abraham's bosom as it relates to uh, that parable out of Luke chapter 16. But we also see the word paradise. And let me just uh, put out there that the word paradise is elastic. In fact, I don't think that's difficult to understand because we do the same thing, right? If I told you that um, I spent last week in, uh, my wife and I spent last week in Maui, right? We were on the beach in Maui, and I said, oh my goodness, it was paradise. And then later, I said, boy, am I glad, though, that we're in church because I just look forward to spending an eternity in Christ's presence in paradise. Would you for a second think that Jesus and I are going to be hanging out on the beach in Maui. Of course not. You understand the concept behind paradise and that it can have, you know, a descriptive form, a location form, and you, you, you know, that we're, there, there's something there. And I believe that that's what's happening biblically as well. So the word paradise in the New Testament is used three times. And so let's look at those three things. So I'm going to actually start, because I think it's easier to think of it this way. We're going to start from the end, probably the more specific way, and work backwards. So Revelation 2.7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Okay, so the tree of life is in the paradise of God. Who's got Revelation 22? Okay, so we're going to dive just a little bit deeper. The word paradise isn't in here, but we've just established on what Jasmine read that the tree of life is where paradise is in this context. And so you read a little more descriptor, Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5, about that. Okay. 
Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of, of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be there, <clears throat> be on their foreheads. And night will no, be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Okay, so question for you real quick. Jacob, don't let go of the microphone. Yeah. In this setting, in this use of where the tree of life is going to be, which, by the way, is in paradise, would you say that that is a temporary or a permanent setting? I don't know. <laughs> I didn't, I just read. <laughs> okay, okay. Anyone want to throw it out? Permanent. This is, this is worship and glory. This is capital P, capital A, capital R, you know, this is paradise, right? So we're talking, so take out the, the diagram and just, okay, so we have an eternal version of paradise that there's no question, like that is, is that's, that's, that's ultimate paradise. Okay, Second Corinthians 12, verses 1 to 4. Can I give that to anyone? 2 Corinthians 12, 1 to 4. Okay, Michelle. We'll give you a pass. No it joke. is necessary to boast, though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body... I do not know. God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how, much, how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. God knows. Was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. Okay, so here is my question to anyone, which is, do you, this, this one may be not quite as obvious, but hopefully, is that paradise that's being referred to there of this experience that was communicated to Paul? Hey, this is, this is what happened. I was caught up to paradise. So whatever that means, it means, but was that a permanent experience? No. This, he's relating something that happened and whatever, it, it, it has its own meaning or whatever, but it's not a permanent paradise. That's not eternal. He's like, he was caught up to. Okay, so already now we have a, some form of a non-eternal pre, I'm going to put pre-consummation. So Christ has not returned, but yet somebody has experienced something that has been referred to as paradise. And then, of course, we probably have the most familiar one, Luke 23, verses 39 to 43. Wayne. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since we are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, to, and he said Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Okay, hold on, Wayne. Hang on. To it. Wayne, what day of the week did, uh, was Jesus crucified? Friday. He was crucified on Friday. What day of the week was, did Jesus resurrect? 
Was he resurrected? Sunday. Sunday. But he said, today, today, so that he's talking to him on one day, Friday. Friday. And he says, today, you'll be with me in paradise. And so this is where we go, okay, well, already, if we've established there's some elasticity to this, I think that we can look at this in a sense of, is it possible that after this man dies and Christ dies and has yet to be risen, that there is a paradise uh, that relates to this idea of upper Sheol that is not a place of torment after death. He's, he's giving reassurance. That's not a question. You can give him the microphone back. I see the wheels turning like you're worried. I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. So here's the point I want to make is that if your definition of paradise is exclusive to the eternal setting of heaven, you can see how what Wayne just read would be problematic. Because you're thinking, well, wait a minute, so does that mean as soon as Jesus died, he went up to heaven and so did the criminal on the cross? And we go, well, wait a minute, Jesus hasn't even been risen yet. And what, do we, what do we do with that? And what I'm saying is if you understand that there is an, a, a legitimate application of paradise, the word paradise, in different ways, then this really isn't a problem at all. And in fact, when we lay this against that fabric of the rich man and Lazarus, we can see that after death, there is a place that has, uh, in which there is not torment, and in fact, is a very good place. It's not the absolute best eternal paradise that we, um, that Jacob read about, that we look forward to, but at that time, there was still something that was separate from what the rich man was experiencing on that other side of the chasm. Now, one suggestion that has been made, and I would say, sure, it's a possibility, and that connects the three uh, versions of paradise, uh, three uses of paradise, is that paradise means to be in the presence of Christ. So I also can see theologically, if you wanted to say, okay, to be in the presence of Christ is to be in paradise. Therefore, of course, the one that Jacob read, the, the really the eternal paradise, of course, we're in the presence of Christ. The second one where the guy has the experience and says he was caught up to paradise, we don't really know. Was he in the presence? I suppose maybe in that experience, he's saying, that's what is being communicated. And then, of course, you have Jesus himself telling the criminal on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. So the very fact that you are with Christ in some way is to be in paradise. Eh, okay, so I'm not going to say that's wrong or absolutely impossible. I don't, I, I think, though the, the language that's being used here is a little more concrete than that. Theologically, I think those are good things to think about and, and of course, to be in Christ's presence. But, um, but when we look at this elasticity of the word paradise, I think we really don't have to struggle. What it does is instead of, in, it, it takes away the, the trouble of the, the today you'll be with me in paradise and hopefully it shifts your thinking to what we're talking about now, which is, okay, well, when he does say that, where is Jesus and why is it paradise? And this is where I'm hoping to help fill, in, fill that in with some color that says, well, I think that we can really take um, um, information from the parable of the rich man and Lazarus and go, Lazarus was in no pain at all. He was doing just fine. You might even say he was in some form of paradise. And the rich man recognized that. And then we have all those other observations, which is there's no change in state. They can recognize each other. There's a consciousness. All those things are at play. 
and would also support what Jesus says to the criminal on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Well, how is that a benefit if it's some sleep state? How is that a benefit if Christ hasn't risen and there's something and Christ is going to go suffer in torment in some way in Sheol? So you can see how this division helps to give us a better sense of what's happening in Scripture as, as these things are kind of playing out. I'm sure that it raises all kinds of questions in your head. Praise God. But we will continue to fill that out. And then next week, what we're going to do is we're going to say, okay, well, I have some sense of this bifurcation, this two levels, the upper and lower Sheol, so that as far as humanly speaking, when someone dies in the Old Testament era prior to Christ, they are either going to paradise or what's referred to as Abraham's bosom or to a place of anguish, Sheol and Hades. In fact, I must have... Did, is there somebody's verse I didn't call because I'm thinking I skipped one? No? Because there's a verse that talks about, that refers... Oh, I think that's part of the Acts. Maybe the Acts one where, where, um, where Judas goes to, uh, to a place of, of anguish. So, again, as far as elasticity of terms... When we see Sheol and Hades, it is not uncommon for it to legitimately mean this lower Sheol or a place of torment or a place of pain for the unrighteous. But we already established that's not what it means all the time. It can also mean a general sense, and within that general sense fits this upper Sheol. And that's where we have this, this stuff up here. We're going to continue to fill out the picture. So next time we're going to hit lower Sheol, and I'm going to tell you what this other thing is down here um, that is not a part of this intermediate state. All right, I'm already one minute past. Yes. I was just going to encourage um, like those here who maybe this is really foreign to or seems very strange. Um, in history, it's not that strange. I mean, even I think I'm assuming it's still part of like uh, high school literacy requirements to read like Dante's Inferno and things the, like concepts. With, although, you know, fiction, um, this concept isn't foreign. But I think uh, the encouragement to me is there are just things that once you start to think about this, become easier and you don't wrestle with. You know, I was always challenged by, wait a minute, Saul is consulting a medium and brings up right. Samuel, and Samuel says, right. "Why have you brought me up from my rest?" And you're like, "What?" Uh, mediums, no, that's all fake. That's all just nonsense. That's not real. Well, suddenly you're like, wait a minute, coming up. And you're like, same. So there's just, there are things right. that I think, although we're wrestling maybe with this now, or if this seems really foreign, as with other expositions and teaching and learning of scripture, is hopefully later, as you continue to pass through some of these other things, these dots are getting connected where before maybe you wrestled, now you don't have to wrestle there nearly the same. So I would just encourage everyone to stick with it. And then obviously, if you miss a Sunday, listen to the recording or ask questions because uh, there's a lot more to the picture. Praise God. And hopefully you're seeing some of the early verses we read line up then with the fact that there is peace on the other side of the grave. And even then the example you just gave of Samuel coming up, they, even Saul, an unbeliever, recognized that it was Samuel. He saw this. So these things all start to just kind of come into focus. All right. Thank you, Lord, for this morning. Thank you uh, for all of these scriptures that we can read. Help us to assimilate, to digest, to study. Um, Help us to find the truth. Help us to uh, more uh, 
with, with more skill, wield the sword of the Spirit. And Lord, we also pray that in the uh, following worship service that you would meet with us and you would be glorified in Christ's name. Amen.